Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 41. The topic, while the wind whips the sea into a frenzied storm, Jesus is fast asleep on a pillow in the stern of the boat. The title of our message, The Wind and the Pillow. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we uh, appreciate the fact that you've brought us together as a, a, a body of believers, as the church, Lord. We know that there's probably some here who don't know you who are outside of that family. We pray that they could be born again, Lord, and brought in. Right now, we want to study your word because it's alive and powerful. It's going to discern what's going on in our hearts so that we can see it and so that we can be blessed, Lord, by your great love for us. Help us to understand these words in their context and in the context of our lives. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. There are a couple of things you should never do. One of them, of course, is to never go in against the Sicilian when death is on the line. All right, second service watches The Princess Bride. First service doesn't even watch movies. They have a whole different message, first service, because I can't make any cultural references at all. But that's one thing. The other thing is to never take a bonka boat ride out to Apu Island in the Philippines. A bonka boat, it's a hollowed out log fixed with an outrigger to stabilize it. By fixed, I mean with string. It's powered by a lawnmower motor that turns a length of pipe attached to a rusty propeller probably salvaged off a World War II vessel that sunk. Bear in mind there are no life vests and no rescue squad of any kind should you get into distress out in the middle of the ocean. It's great if the ocean is like glass, like it was when we cruised over to the island early in the morning. I mean, you could literally, you're like right on the water. You put your hand out and the water is right there. Late that afternoon, coming back, the water was choppy. Both of the Banca boats that our mission team were in were getting severely beaten. We got separated, and I honestly thought I would never see the guys in that boat again. Later, I heard how their boat almost capsized, and it would have if one of the guys hadn't jumped into the water and grabbed the outrigger to stabilize the boat. Jumped into the ocean, uh, no life vest. Uh, I guess he figured, I'm going to die anyway. I might as well try and save us. We barely made it back. I'm not exaggerating. I thought I was going to die. I can't help but think of that harrowing boat ride whenever I read about the disciples of Jesus afraid in one of their storms. Their experience in the storm was the second session of a lesson that the Lord was teaching them. First, he encouraged them to take full advantage of opportunities to sow the seed of the Word of God. But then, with the storm, he was able to reveal the opposition they could expect as sowers. Opportunities still abound, so does opposition. I'll organize my thoughts around those two points. Number one, get ready for opportunities to be sowing. And number two, be ready for opposition to your sowing. Verses 21 through 34, let's get ready for opportunities. Now, Jesus was revealing to his closest disciples what he called the mystery of the kingdom of God. The kingdom that was promised the nation of Israel was not a mystery. It permeates their scriptures. It was an ever-present hope always on the minds of the Jews. The mystery being revealed for the very first time by Jesus was that there would be a delay in establishing the kingdom on the earth. Because the Jewish authorities would reject Jesus as their king, he would return to heaven without inaugurating the kingdom. He would, however, return to earth in his second coming to fulfill all the promises of a kingdom on the earth ruled from Jerusalem. 
Jesus is thus explaining to the disciples, and by extension to us, what would be happening between these two comings. He told the parable of the sower, and we said that it was foundational. It established that the main spiritual characteristic of this age in which we live, waiting for Jesus to return, is the preaching of the gospel to lost men, women, and children. That means that our priority, whatever else we do as a church, is to be sowing the word of God. Listening to the parable of the sower, you realize that a lot of people, represented by various soil types, they were just not going to get saved. From one point of view, in fact, it would seem that most people would remain lost. That's something discouraging on the surface. A sower might have a tendency to get discouraged, to grow weary in light of the refusals of many to trust Jesus Christ and be saved. It's another way of saying that the ministry can be very difficult. It's not always very successful. And so the Lord realizes how prone we are to discouragement. I've found that even when successful ministry seems to occur, I can always find ways to be discouraged if I'm not careful. What Jesus does in these next few verses is pause to encourage us to go on sowing. And so verse 21, also he said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? The household lamp in first century Israel was a small clay container filled with oil, would have a wick in it. You wouldn't bother to light it if your intent was to keep its light hidden. You wouldn't light it and then put it under a bushel basket or under your bed. That's just silly. You'd put it somewhere like a lampstand where it could do its job and give off the most light in the darkness. Disciples of Jesus are the lamp we're called upon to shine in the kingdom of darkness throughout this age. And so the Lord says, you're a sower, go on sowing no matter the result, and don't get discouraged because you are the only light in the darkness. Verse 22, there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. This saying of the Lord's has been taken out of context to strike fear into the hearts of believers. I remember a gospel tract in the Jack Schick series in which our meeting with Jesus face-to-face in heaven was portrayed as featuring our lives being played back as a movie for everyone in the universe to see and hear, including every secret, dark, shameful thought we had ever thunk. And it was terrifying. I was a young Christian. I thought, oh, man, I... I can't even do anything about the thoughts I used to thunk, you know, I mean, but, and so it it just, it just struck fear into my heart. Stuff like that might motivate us for a time, but it attacks the nature and the character of Jesus. It makes us think of our sweet Lord as someone who wants to embarrass us in front of others. We do a good job of that ourselves. He doesn't need to help us. And so that's not what this is about. In context, which is where we should keep these words, Jesus was encouraging his followers to share the secrets he was revealing to them. Remember, he's teaching in parables, revealing the secrets to his disciples. He says, share them. And after his resurrection, we see that they brought them into the light as lamps in the spiritual darkness of this world. And so we're not to be, um, we're not to be those who make things difficult for people or, or who keep things hidden. The teaching and preaching of God's word should be simple and straightforward. It should be understandable. We like to say, keep it on the bottom shelf where everyone can access it so that it's not difficult. Did you ever hear a message and think, 
man, that guy must be brilliant because I didn't understand a word he said. Well, you've never heard one here, but you might have heard one somewhere. And there's a tendency to think that if somebody is really complicated, that they're smarter and somehow they have a deeper truth. We're not to do that with the Word of God. Yeah, I love just watching Billy Graham or Franklin Graham share the Word of God because they almost don't say anything. Have you ever, I mean, I mean this all, with all reverence. They come out and they say, Jesus died for your sins. He rose from the dead on the third day. Come forward and receive the Lord. People come forward by the thousands because there's anointing about it. And there's nothing hard to understand about their evangelism. There should be nothing hard to understand about our teaching. Captain Barbosa's complaint in Pirates of the Caribbean could be amended to, there are a lot of long words in there. We're not but humble Christians. And so don't strive for intellectualism. You can be an intellectual, you can get a degree, you can be the smartest person in the room, and then the best thing for you to do is to make sure that if there was a child in that room, they could understand what you were saying. We want to reveal truth, not conceal it, and we want to do it simply for everyone to understand. Verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Your children have ears, and their hearing is usually better than yours. Often, however, they act in ways that astonish you, as if they didn't hear your warning or your restriction. Believers are to hear what Jesus is saying in the inspired word of God by making a spiritual effort at listening. That might mean for you taking notes or repetitive reading or listening to a study more than once. It might mean reading along with the transcript or the opposite, turning off all your devices in order to focus your mind on listening. Whatever you need to do to have ears to hear, do it. Verse 24, then he said to him, take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has to him, more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. There's a famous anecdote that pastors use. It's about a minister who keeps teaching the same passage of scripture every Sunday for several weeks in a row. Finally, one of the members of the church can't take it anymore, comes to him to inquire about it, and he says something like, I'm going to keep teaching it until you start living it. Zing. Wow, man, I, I've never wanted to do that, but it seems like it would really get you, you know? A lot of weird things happen in churches. I doubt that ever really happened, but it kind of does illustrate what Jesus was implying in these verses. It makes sense that God would not give you more and more insight into his word if you're not going to apply or share the insight he's already given you. Uh, and so be faithful in the little things and he will give you more. It's a stewardship issue. He, he doesn't want to give you things so that you can hoard them he wants to give you things so that you can invest them, so that you can share them. Christians sometimes feel dry. They usually think it's their church, that their pastor isn't doing a particularly good job of teaching. And, and you know, that can be true, obviously. But it is true more often that a person isn't acting upon the truth that they've already received. So we need to be giving out and giving out, and then we will receive more and more and more. It's when we feel dry that we experience what we, what we have even being taken away. Even the things that used to excite us about God start to seem dull. And so if you're ever in a time when you're dry, you feel dull, you're, just, you're even thinking, man, I don't even really want to get up and go to church. Hey, it's probably you 
And it's probably that you're not really using the things that the Lord has given you and you're hoarding it. You ever see these shows about hoarders? Man, that's a mess, those houses. It's grotesque. Then you realize that's you. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's a secret camera in your garage. But anyway, you know, we can be spiritual hoarders, taking in and taking more in our generation perhaps than ever before because you can hear the Word of God all the time in your car, CDs, podcasts, on the internet, on television, on Roku, live streaming. I mean, you could, you could 24-7 be receiving the Word of God. And all the more, you need to have an outlet for ministry. Now, having encouraged us to go on sowing, Jesus tells two quick parables to describe additional characteristics of the age in which we find ourselves. He says in verse 26, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how for the earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. But when the, rain, uh, when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The single simple teaching here is that the life is in the seed, not with the sower. After it's sown, the farmer can go about his business, living his day-to-day life, and know that the seed will sprout and grow. And so Jesus, among other things, is reminding his disciples that the power is in the word of God. Sow it and let it do its work. Don't lose confidence in it just because you cannot see it in the hearts of those to whom it has been sown. And so again, there's an encouragement. Just be about the business of sharing the word of God and let it do its work. Uh, It's not up to you to make conversions or to grow disciples. or It's only up to you to share the word of God uh, and to make it known, and then it will do its work. Now, we need this reminder because we're always being told the church is failing. Every day, it seems, I see an article on how the church is failing to reach the next generation. As a result of that, people get nervous and they think, well, we need to recast the seed of the word in some new manner that is more attractive. And while we should be open to changing our methods, and we obviously want to reach everyone and maybe become all things to all men, that doesn't mean we adopt the world. That doesn't mean we bring the world in. It doesn't mean we change the essential message of the gospel. It doesn't mean we hide the gospel in a way that is hard. I think we need to still challenge people with the gospel. And so uh, Jesus says, look, the power is in the word itself. If you're not seeing conversions, if nothing is going on, uh, it's not going to be helpful to dumb down the word. Maybe you need to return to it. Maybe you need to have a revival in it. Now, verse 30. Then he said, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall we picture it? It's like a mustard seed, which when it is sown in the ground is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes a greater uh, than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Now, the mustard seed was the smallest seed in first century Israel, but the mustard plant not the weed we normally think of, it could grow to a height of several feet, many feet. But this one grew to be huge, and we can see in Jesus' description that it featured both supernatural and unnatural growth. The parable of the mustard seed ensures us that the mystery phase of the kingdom of God in between the two comings of Jesus is going to feature phenomenal spiritual growth. 
Jesus hadn't revealed it yet, but in between his comings, he's going to be building his church comprised of all born-again believers from the day of Pentecost until his second coming. Its growth is nothing short of supernatural. Nothing and no one, not devils or men, have been able to stop it. Think of it. Jesus starting with 12 guys, one of whom denied him and another who betrayed him, then 120 disciples in an upper room, and they, all they had was the, their own ability to share with other people verbally what they had seen and heard of Jesus Christ, and yet it's marched down through the centuries till today, and Jesus has done more to affect the world than any single individual ever. It's an absolutely supernatural phenomena, the church of Jesus Christ. With the benefit of hindsight and history, we see the continued supernatural growth of the church. But we also see something unnatural. There are many groups and many individuals who lay claim to being Christians, but they're not. And these are the birds that have lodged in the branches of Christianity. Ask a person in the East, uh, and they will say that every Westerner is a Christian. That doesn't matter your... Uh, denomination, it doesn't matter that you might even be an atheist, you're still to them a Christian. And then even in America, there are many churches that claim to be Christian denominations, but they're lodged in the branches of real Christianity and they're non-Christian cults. And so Jesus is saying, that's what this age is going to be like. There's going to be phenomenal supernatural growth as people get saved, but also there's going to be false brethren, liberal churches, cults, and, and the like, lodging in its branches. Now, we know that the birds in this parable are evil because they were evil in the parable of the sower. You can't have, uh, remember I told you last week that the parable of the sower is like a legend to a map or a key to unlocking the other parables. And since Jesus doesn't explain the birds in this parable, he assumes that we're going to understand that the birds are something evil. They are the agents of Satan. And so that's the picture we have. And, and you look at history, you look at where we're at right now, this, that's exactly what has happened. You've got the church strong and vibrant. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And you've got all these crazy liberal and cultic, uh, you know, branches, as it were, and uh, birds lodging in them um, that actually deny Jesus Christ. And so this parable describes the unstoppable supernatural growth of the church, but it does not teach, not at all, that the church is going to bring in the kingdom of God or uh, purify the world or make a perfect world. Uh, that is not going to happen. The church is just here. We're here to, to save men and women by preaching the gospel. And then at the end of the age, there'll be a, a sorting out as the Lord separates wheat from tares and uh, in his second coming. So verse 33, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained these things to his disciples. Parables to the multitudes, explanation to the disciples. Bear in mind, a person could go from being just a member of the multitudes to being a disciple. There wasn't a lock on it. Jesus was not denying anyone the forgiveness of their sins, but they must seek after the Lord himself and not just his miracles. They must be sincere seekers of the Lord. Do you remember the old Dr. Pepper jingle, I'm a pepper? Remember that? How many remember that? How many drink Dr. Pepper? I'll pray for you. I hate that stuff. But anyway, 
uh, just, I like to share insights into my life because I know you, you care. But uh, remember, I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, you're a pepper. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? Dr. Pepper, drink Dr. Pepper. You could put the word sower in there. I'm a sower, you're a sower, she's a sower, they're sowers. Wouldn't you like to be a sower too? That's going to rattle around in your head. I, I hope it does. Because that's what, the, you know, that's what jingles do. We are sowers of the Word of God. And like a farmer, I don't worry about whether the seed has life in it. I just, there's the seed, it's, it's in the ground. Let the Lord have His way. Let Him have His work. Actually, though, you can be discouraged about it falling on so much weird ground. When the seed does sprout up, you remember in the parable of the sower, it produced 30-fold, 60 and 100, which was a thousand times more than the regular yield that the farmer was used to in, in first century Israel. And so, sow the word, let it do its work. Then be ready for opposition to your sowing. You don't need to understand or read Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew for that matter in order to understand God's word. But every now and then, the proper translation of a word can help us immensely. Jesus is going to calm a storm at sea by saying, peace, be still. The Greek word translated be still literally means be muzzled. More importantly, it's the same command Jesus issued when he addressed demons, which implies that this storm was actually stirred by Satan. Knowing this was the devil's doing, we can see this episode as a reminder to us that ministry will always be met by demonic opposition of some kind. And so verse 35, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Did you ever in elementary school take that test that was really a trick to see if you read the instructions? The teacher is supposed to really hype how important it is for you to finish all 25 questions, but you don't really have enough time to do so, and you know that from the beginning. Nervous that you won't finish, you turn over the test and dive right into it without reading the one-sentence direction on the top. The direction says, answer only questions 1 and 25, then turn your test in to your teacher. Now, my brother brought that home. He was, in, he was quite a bit older than I was. I was still in elementary school. He brought that home and gave me the test, and I answered all 25 questions, and then he showed me what a moron I was because I hadn't read their directions. And so when I got to the fifth grade and my teacher gave that test, oh, man, was I ready. I went to school every day for the rest of my life until that test happened to take that test. And when it finally did, me and Jill Toth were the only two students. I still remember it. It was that vivid to me. Me and Jill were the only ones that went forward after about three minutes. And it was a glorious moment for me as all the other kids looked at me and thought I was a genius. <laughs> Actually, I just had a, a nice older brother. And uh, so that was the deal. Uh, most, fifth, most fifth graders miserably fail at that. Jesus' direction to his disciples is a kind of test in that way, or at least commentators see it like that. He said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. He didn't say, let's cross under to the bottom of the sea. In other words, they could have had faith to know they would arrive at the opposite shore one way or another as promised despite the storm. This was the word of God when Jesus spoke. He was telling the truth, giving out the word. He said, we are going over to the other side. 
And yet at one point, they felt like they were going under and that it was all over. And so verse 36, now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. I like that. Other little boats were involved. Boats on which Jesus was not a passenger. If the guys on his boat were so terrified, how do you think these other boats were doing? I mean, it was, you know, some of you have been in life-threatening situations like bonka boats, you know, and airplanes that are making emergency landings and things like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, to say the least. And so all these other little boats are also affected by this storm. Now, make a mental note of that as well for our next study, because as chapter 5 opens, Jesus lands and immediately faces off against the man living in tombs possessed by a legion of demons, a legion in the Roman army was a thousand men. And so whether he actually had a thousand demons living in him or not, I mean, this is like a, an army of demons. And so here comes Jesus in his little flotilla of fishing boats, and they hit the shore like a D-Day invasion, and they're met by demons, and Jesus just destroys them. It's not, there's, there's not even any mopping up to do. And it's portraying this spiritual warfare and the fact that Jesus is victorious. And so verse 37, a great windstorm arose. The waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. Now, before we criticize the boys in the boat, we see they waited until they were taking on water. It seemed they would definitely sink. So these guys, I don't know what their attitude was up until that point, but once they started taking on water, they thought, hey, this is a lot more serious than we thought. We're, you know, I could see the argument, oh, we're going to make it. Everything, you know, Jesus, he's just like, he'd get up if it was important, you know, and the boat's being tossed around. We've been in severe storms before. Hey, there's a, is this normal? It's like water back here. The boat's breaking up. Now you've got some serious thinking to do. I don't want to ruin anyone's promise to you that Jesus won't let you sink, but he just might. The Apostle Paul was in multiple shipwrecks left floating on the planks of ships that had broken up under him. In fact, in the book of Acts, he says, during a particularly wicked storm at sea, he says to the, the crew and the passengers on this boat, he says, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, <laughs> just the ship. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Paul, since you've got an in with God, can we amend that? Did, you, did I hear you right? We're going to live, but we're going to be floating in the ocean. The ship's going to break up and we'll run aground. Yeah. Sometimes I think, you know, the advice we give people, before you speak it, ask yourself, could I say this to the Apostle Paul? So if I'm going to go to somebody and say, hey, brother, this is just a storm and the Lord is with you and there's no way you can sink in the storms of life. Paul would punch you in the face. I'm going to write a book. Things Paul would punch you in the face for. <laughs> I mean, this guy suffered for Jesus Christ. And, and he talks about shipwrecks before this shipwreck ever happened. This was a big one. And, and I mean, this guy was in the drink all the time. Nobody had the right to say to Paul, Oh, the Lord won't give you more than you can handle. There's no way your ship is going down. Oh, yeah. Hey, let me tell you what I have. I have a messenger of the devil to buffet my body so that I won't get proud. Uh, you want me to list my afflictions, Paul says in one place? He goes, I hate to have to do this because it's carnal, but man, here we go. 
He talks about imprisonments and beatings and stonings and uh, famine and pestilence and all the things that he had to endure. When he first got saved, the Lord told him how many things he would have to suffer for Jesus Christ. Jesus was just as much with him in the water as he was on deck. I want us to be ready in case our ship sinks. It can, but that in no way minimizes the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus is always, always, always with you in the storm. And that means sometimes in the sea after your boat has disintegrated. Some of you, I don't know everyone here and what they're going through, but you may have come this morning thinking, there's no boat under me anymore. The news I just got or what's happening in my life, I'm adrift. I'm on, I'm on a piece of board wondering if I'm going to make it to shore spiritually. You are because Jesus is just as much with you in the drink as he is on the deck. Verse 38, he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. I like that. I, I don't know why, but that, it's an interesting detail. Not only is he asleep, he's on a little pillow that he carries around for himself. It's a Sobakawa pillow or something, you know. But anyway, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? How do you even get those words out of your mouth to Jesus? Jesus who left heaven, who laid aside his deity, the prerogatives of his deity, never quit being God, but he laid aside the prerogatives of deity to become a man, to humble himself, to suffer a degrading, shameful death on the cross so that he could rise from the dead in a human body and forever be a, the, the God-man so that he could save you while you were yet sinners, while we were yet the enemies of God. And then we would dare to come to Jesus and say, don't you care that I can't pay my mortgage? Don't you care that this is happening in my life, whatever it might be. And yet, that's how we feel. And that's what we do to the Lord. Just think about that. Don't let those words roll off your mouth. Don't even think them. Talk a lot about suffering here because the age in which we live between the two comings of Jesus, it's going to be marked by suffering with patience and perseverance as a testimony to the grace of God at work in our lives. I remembered a quote from C.S. Lewis's book on suffering. It's called The Problem of Pain. It goes like this. Lewis says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, I think that Lewis meant God uses pain and suffering to shout at us as his megaphone to get our undivided attention. And while that may be true, when, with apologies to him, I think that pain and suffering are a megaphone the Lord hands to us for us to shout about his grace while we are afflicted. Paul, in fact, said he boasted in his sufferings. He understood that God gave him suffering so that he could take up a megaphone and say, I have the peace of God that passes all understanding. I have the grace of God that is sufficient in all suffering. What do you have? And, and people are moved by that. Think of people that you've watched suffer in the Lord and the testimony that they have given of grace and mercy. And, and you think, you universally, we universally think, I don't know if I could do that. And then you find that you can, because you can't do that, but you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And that is the testimony of our time. That is the time in which we live. 
We live in a time between the two comings of Christ when God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, not in our strength. As we pointed out, Jesus spoke to this storm in a way that indicated it was satanic in origin. He says in verse 39, uh, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still, and the wind ceased and there was a great calm. The wind might suddenly subside naturally, but for the sea to become instantly like glass, well, that's a miracle, and those fishermen on the boat would know it. The devil can't be blamed for every bad thing. We live in a fallen world after all. But we must be aware that he will do everything and anything to hinder us from sowing the seed of the word of God. Our part is to simply press on, to move forward, knowing that the Lord is with us and that he will never leave us or forsake us, even if we're in the sea. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? This is understandable when coupled with his words, let us cross over. By faith in his words, they could have known that they would reach the destination. I was thinking how we go out of our way to simulate crazy adventures by going to places like Magic Mountain. We have faith that the rides are safe and well-maintained. I mean, for the most part, every time you go to Magic Mountain, you're not thinking, I could die right now on Superman. Now, when you're on it, you think, I feel like I want to die. But, you know, you, you trust that it's well-maintained, that it's, you know, somebody's actually looking at the thing, unlike the King's Fair. But anyway, uh, now, have you seen some of these crazy YouTube videos of, I guess they forgot to put the bolts in, and these things just, you know, people are getting killed by the score on these things. It's crazy. But we go on those things. We, we tempt it because we enjoy the ride. Jesus wants us to rejoice in the ride we are on with him, even through the storm, even in the sea. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Uh, They were afraid in the storm, but they were now more afraid of Jesus. Was this a proper, submissive, reverential fear of God? Or were they afraid of what they'd signed up for? Both are possibilities for disciples, especially as we face opposition for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian life is not a war game. It's live fire with injuries and casualties. And there's friendly fire too, but that's for another text to describe. Besides expecting it, how can we be ready for opposition? Well, it's by remembering who Jesus is and that ultimately he is in charge. Even the wind and the sea obey him. He can keep us from the storm. He can keep us through the storm. He can keep us even if our boat splinters underfoot. Take up the megaphone when it is your lot in life to suffer, letting everyone know that God's grace really is sufficient. And that's not, a, that's not an understatement. It's not, a, you know, it's not a retreat to say, well, God's grace is sufficient. It's a, hey, God's grace is sufficient for me. I know that I may not make it to the shore I thought I was going to make it to in this life, but I see a farther shore, a distant shore, and that's what I'm headed for.